British Spy Stories, Season 2, The Kill Order. Episode 23. The sun shines brightly over the 600 square miles of the Balooija forest. The trees stretch in all directions as far as Gabrielle can see, from her vantage point in the roof of the house owned by Panama's family. The loft is bare, not stuffed with old crates as she has expected. She hears footsteps ascending the stairs behind her and turns to see Panama with two cups of coffee. He sits down next to her on the plain wooden bench she's drawn up in front of one of the four windows in the space so she can have a clear view straight down the driveway. Are there really no other ways into the house apart from this driveway? She says. Through the trees if you're used to forest walking. You can walk from anywhere around here, but it's slow going. And unless you know the forest, you can easily get lost, he says. People are often reported missing, and the Belarusian police have to send up big search parties. Some guy wasn't found for a month and died out here. They both take a mouthful of coffee. Do you think he'll come? Says Panama. Oh, he'll be here. There's no doubt about that. How long? As long as it takes. We can't be holed up here forever. Gabby looks at him. How many years have you been in the field, Panama? Six. So you know sometimes that we wait. I have stuff to do, he says. I'm your commander on this operation, Vitali. He smiles at her use of his real name. Only my mother calls me that, he says. Call me Vita. She turns her eyes back to the woodland outside. We'll need plenty of hardware, she says after a minute. Can you source that? What do you need? He says. SA-80 light arms, Glock 17s, L-16A2 mortars, and L-109A2 grenades, with run-in remote lines and control units. Oh, and a sniper rifle, she says. This is enough for a small army, says Panama. Can you get it or not? Sure. Give me twenty-four hours. We'll bring it across from Poland. The sound of Jacob crying flows up from below. Gabby gets up and goes down to the bedroom that Irina and her son have been given towards the back of the house. The mother is cuddling the boy on her knee and whispering quietly into his ear. Is he okay? says Gabby in Russian. He fell over. Gabby sits down next to Irina, while Jacob gradually quietens. How are you feeling? Frightened. Don't be. He's a violent man if he comes. We'll protect you, she says. Irina looks at her. Can you? We're just you and your two friends here. Can you really? We certainly intend to. Gabby smiles at the Russian woman. Don't worry. You're not just some random woman who happens to know my family, are you? Says Irina. I've seen the way you are about the house. You're military. It doesn't matter who we are, says Gabby. We're here to help you. The next morning, Laravel wakes early and returns to her job of researching for the errant professor. She starts with the taxi company that Morrison used at Hamburg Station. She calls them direct, and yes, that is one of their cars, but no, they can't give her information about the journeys that their taxis make. 
She tries another way to skin the cat and spins through her contacts she has in Germany's MI5. She stops on Ulf Peterson, who she knows is Hamburg-based. She hits the connect button and the call rings out from the speakers in the comms room. Agent Laravel, says a man's voice. The video screen is blank in front of her. What can I do for you? Ulf, I need your help. Go on, he says. Taxi buyer issue. What do you know about them? Hang on. The sound of typing comes through the speakers. The video screen flips to a picture of a man in his late thirties. Closely cropped brown hair and a full beard. With round glasses perched on a long nose. They're on Edvardestrasse. Near the centre, he says. She gives Ulf the details and exact time that Morrison was picked up from Hamburg station then explains that she needs to know where the cab took him. Ulf promises to see what he can do, and says he can go and visit the place straight away and put on some pressure. She goes for a shower and makes coffee, then comes back to the comms room to wait. After an hour, a message pings into her Oberon inbox from Ulf. She calls him back immediately. He gives her the address he had managed to extract from the cab company. Fortunately, he'd researched the owners before he arrived, and found they had convictions for drug possession. So it was an easy task to get them to talk under the threat of further convictions. I'm coming to Hamburg, she says. I'll be waiting. Laravel finds Carling in the kitchen. What time did you get up? He says. Fucking earlier than you. How's your search going? I've traced him to Hamburg. I'm going there, leaving in half an hour. You know where? He took a taxi from the station. I've got the address. From behind them, the sound of bare feet on the wooden floor flows in from the corridor, and Freya comes into the room. Hamburg, she says to Laravel, who stops for a second, wondering how long Freya has been there, and how much of their discussion she'd heard. Hmm. That's good for you, right? says Freya. He needs looking after with that injury and his age. She shifts her view between the others in turn. Laravel only nods in silence. Yeah, great news, says Carling. I'd better be going, says Laravel, and goes off to pack her bag. How's Arena? says Hans to Gabby, as she appears next to him on the front veranda of the house in the forest. She'll be okay. She's worried that we'll be outnumbered. We will be. You don't know that, says Gabby. Well, what do you think Barbu's doing right now? Sending his people all over Belarus to get possible sightings of a blonde Russian woman and a four-year-old kid. After we tricked him with that hologram thing, he's seriously pissed off. But he's guessed we're holding her somewhere near. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. He'll also be collecting men and guns. So that as soon as he does find out, He'll be here shooting the place up, says Hans. So if you're going to find some way out of this using that criminal data on him that London are pulling together, then soon would be good. I've got the data, she says. There's plenty of evidence we can use in a closed court. Murders, prostitution, kidnapping, people smuggling, drugs, you name it. You'd need witnesses to give evidence, Gab. We'll put them behind black video and give them new lives, she says. How are you going to get the opportunity to tell him all this? 
Isn't it all too late? We've screwed the relationship with him now. I can try, she says. I'm going to go and see him. Just me. Convince him. Or rather, Erica can. Last chance saloon, Gab. Something like that, Gordon. Yeah. Marcus Murphy can hear the sound of the woman breathing before he's fully conscious. When he opens his eyes, he's looking at a cheap white paper light shade hanging from a cord in the centre of the room. The walls are bare. Only one framed picture sits in the middle of one wall. He turns his head. The woman is young, in her twenties. Her brunette hair is long and splayed out across the thin pillows. Only then does he feel the pain in his body. He raises a hand and can feel dried blood on his skin, from a wound on his arm, not deep, but stretching from his wrist to his elbow. His foot hurts too, and he pulls it from the covers to see the reason. Three toes on his left foot are bruised and cut. He sits up, then stands up, and goes to the window to get more light on the subject. The bruising is recent, and so are the cuts. Outside of the window, it's not a place he recognises. He's on the first floor. Below him is a dirty back alley with overflowing bins and cardboard boxes, strewn randomly by the wind. He turns back to the girl and goes round to her side of the bed. She's naked, and her face is injured. The duvet is only partly on her body, and Marcus can see she has bruising on her skin. He gets near to her and listens for breath again. She's definitely alive. He finds his clothes and gets dressed. His arms and legs all ache, like he's been to the gym. Did he get into a fight last night? He can't remember anything. His head is a mess of grogginess and hangover. Marcus wonders if he should leave money in case she's a prostitute. All he can recall is calling the number that the barman gave him. Then he remembers another scene. He met a woman in a club. Is that this woman? He doesn't know. He reaches for his wallet to pull out cash, but it's not in his trouser pocket. He goes through all of his pockets, still nothing. He scours the floor and the bed, but there's no sign of the wallet. He swears to himself. His MI6 ID is in that wallet, as well as cash and cards. That was stupid of him. You're supposed to leave the ID at work when you're off duty. Marcus can feel the panic rising in his veins. How can he have been a successful senior officer in MI6 one minute, then wake up here the next minute, with all the evidence that he's attacked some prostitute, in a drunken rage. His hands are shaking and his throat is dry. He needs a drink. Then he can come up with a plan. Disappear, maybe. Go off-grid. Start a new life. He pulls open the door. Looks back at the girl. Then hurries out.